This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 26, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. We now know some new details in the form of government documents about how the feds have used secret surveillance to spy on reporters. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We discussed the newly released documents and what they mean. What do we know or what have we known about the degree to which reporters have been spied on by the U.S. government and some, you know, some of the rationales and, and uh, uh, product of that. So possibly the most common rationale for uh, spying on reporters, and I'm using that to include not just uh, wiretap style surveillance, but also uh, the acquisition of uh, email and phone records that reveal uh, who uh, people are talking to and how frequently um, is in connection with leak investigations, at least that we know of uh, uh, publicly. Um, maybe the most recent uh, controversial instance of this was uh, the New York Times reporter Allie Watkins uh, had years worth of her uh, email metadata, her email records see and phone records seized, going essentially back to her college years, um, as part of a uh, leak investigation targeting a uh, congressional staffer that she had been uh, romantically involved with. Um, but uh, there were during the Obama era, of course, a number of pretty high-profile uh, controversies about government monitoring of press conduct. Uh, there was an incident where uh, some months of uh, telephone records on I think quite a number of different lines at the Associated Press uh, were uh, subpoenaed as part of a leak investigation. That was a controversial and significant part because uh, you know, they were really f- trying to focus on uh, you know, one or two reporters and one uh, potential leaker, uh, but also potentially gathered uh, information that would reveal the news gathering uh, activities of the organization as a whole, many other reporters. Um, there was, of course, a notorious case where a, uh, I think it was a Fox reporter um, was effectively named as a potential co-conspirator in uh, essentially an act of espionage. Uh, for doing the ordinary journalistic work of trying to cultivate sources. Um, and this was done, I think, not actually because they intended to charge him, but because legally um, the law sort of required them to um, accuse the journalist of, of something um, as a precondition for getting a warrant to look through his communications. Uh, and in response to some of the controversies around this that occurred during the Obama administration, there was some... Uh, tightening of the rules for when uh, reporters' information could be uh, subpoenaed uh, or obtained under other authorities. But there were a number of gaps in that. We knew, again, sort of traditional kind of court orders um, and traditional authorities uh, had a series of uh, stricter limitations put in place. There was a committee established to advise on uh, requests uh, concerning members of the media. Uh, and a number of guidelines, including things like essentially you should exhaust other options and to demonstrate that this is sort of a last resort, um, that records of that kind should be obtained uh, with the cooperation of the media entity targeted whenever possible. Um, again, you know, usually there are ways to to do this. If the, when the reporter themselves is not the target, usually there are ways to do this that you know, with the participation of their lawyers. Uh, now, Trevor Tim at the Freedom of the Press Foundation, uh, following on a 
uh, Freedom of Information Act request uh, brought by the Freedom of the Press Foundation and Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University gives us at least a peek into the rules that the federal government has used for uh, FISA warrants that relate to journalists. So what do we know now? Well, so some of this is, is heartening. Uh, it is the guidelines for uh, FISA surveillance are not as stringent as uh, the ones we know apply to kind of conventional criminal authorities. We don't see, uh, for example, the requirement that um, uh, other avenues be exhausted or there be some showing that uh, the surveillance is necessary to some investigation or prosecution. Uh, there's not the same requirement that uh, information be obtained with the cooperation of the media when possible. That arguably makes some sense in the context of uh, intelligence and foreign intelligence where prosecution is not usually the goal. Whether something is essential is harder to determine. Um, and we also uh, do see that it's fairly broad. There is a requirement just for high-level approval um, by the attorney general uh, or the um, the head of the National Security Division at the Department of Justice, um, and if a target of surveillance is notified is is determined to be a member of the media after uh, surveillance commences, uh, the Attorney General or one of his high level designees has to be notified promptly. Um, so this at least ensures that um, there's a higher level of review for uh, cases where uh, members of the press are swept in, and. Significantly, this applies sort of across the panoply of FISA authorities, um, including uh, – it doesn't apply to uh, every kind of FISA authority. One of the conspicuous omissions is Section 702 where um, essentially NSA analysts designate foreigners outside the US uh, to be tasked for uh, collection of their communications. Um, so in those cases, there's no requirement for approval. But under other – uh, FISA authorities, including uh, the uh, physical search and pen register, which is again communications metadata, and business records authorities, um, as well as some of the other authorities for targeting Americans outside the U.S., this same high level of approval is uh, is required. Uh, again, there are some of the emissions that that uh, do leave some cause for concern. Uh, most major Kind of global news operations have stringers operating around the world. So uh, if you have New York Times reporters who are not citizens of the United States but are in obviously regular communication with their editors and their colleagues in the United States, um, this doesn't require that kind of approval for those people to be targeted under Section 702. Um, again, this is the uh, the discretionary authority under a broad umbrella court order for an analyst to make the determination about uh, who should be targeted. And we still don't know about national security letters. Um, and that gap is in a way the most concerning because national security letters don't require judicial approval, can be issued by the special agent in charge of any of the FBI's 56 field offices um, and cover precisely the kind of information that has been the source of controversy in the past. That is to say, phone records that would show reporters' calling patterns, uh, email records that would show their sort of digital communications patterns, and really, I think, give you a pretty effective roadmap to 
uh, what a reporter is working on and who their sources are. Now, to the extent national security letters have been used in the past, it's worth emphasizing again to uh, an audience that may not be familiar with exactly what those are. They essentially prohibit you from saying anything about the fact that you're handing this data over to the government. Right. Like, like most FISA authorities, NSLs are a slightly different section of the uh, of the U.S. code, but um, come with gag orders. So in effect, uh, when you receive one of these, um, you are not just forbidden from notifying the target, but you're effectively permanently barred from ever disclosing that you have even received such a letter. The courts did eventually say, okay, you can tell your own lawyer um, if you would like to challenge some aspect of the order you've received. Um, but otherwise, you are effectively gagged indefinitely about uh, uh, saying anything about what you've received. And this is also significant because you know one of the very few cases where we know historically the court received uh, an application to uh, compel the production of business records under FISA Section 215 um, that was refused. Uh, we know from uh, public reporting and, and uh, inspectors general's reports that one of those cases involved members of the me media, members of the press, and that this rare denial of that request under the fairly low standard uh, that applies to these Section 215 orders, uh, which is just that has to be relevant to a, uh, an investigation, um, was on the, the grounds that they had concerns about its implications uh, on First Amendment rights. There is a, a section of those statutes that says uh, an order can't be granted if its basis is purely uh, First Amendment protected speech. And so this is one of these rare cases where the uh, government was turned down by the court and uh, because they thought this uh, had disturbing First Amendment implications. And we know that in that case, the FBI turned around and immediately got exactly the same information the court had said they were not entitled to uh, using national security letter authorities, uh, even though, of course, that authority has the same caveat um, that can't be used to uh, target uh, solely sort of for the purpose of, of targeting uh, protected speech. So um, there is pretty clear historical reason to think that when uh, courts are reluctant to uh, authorize monitoring of journalists, national security letters are the tool that the government turns to because they don't require judicial oversight. And uh, that is the one real serious gap in our understanding of what the constraints are on obtaining data about journalists. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 